Well, if you brought a Bible, and I hope you did, go ahead and turn to the book of Nehemiah. You may have to unstick some pages. They're there. Book of Nehemiah, and if you have to go to the table of contents to find it, that is okay. Do you think one person can make a huge difference? You think God could use just a very ordinary man to, to guide a group of discouraged people to do something that other people say is impossible? That's really the story of Nehemiah. That's what happens. In fact, I thought about calling this series Mission Impossible because every time I read this book, his spirit just rubs off on me. I remember reading a, hearing a, an interview that General Schwarzkopf did years ago after a desert storm, and he was talking to some paratroopers, and he said to one guy, do you like jumping out of planes? And the man said, I love it. And he talked to another guy, he said, what about you? You like jumping out of planes? He said, it's the greatest experience of my life. He asked the third guy, well, do you enjoy jumping out of planes? He said, I hate it. He said, why do you do it then? He said, I like to be around people who like to jump. <laughs> well, I like Nehemiah. Because his spirit just, I, I feel his heartbeat. Let me tell you what this book has done for me and what we can expect. If you'll stay with me in this series, I can guarantee you, you will grow spiritually. So that's a promise. Let me tell you what's done in my life. He's taught me what to do when I face problems that there are no human answers that can solve. He's taught me how to keep God's sovereign control and our responsibility in balance. He's taught me how to handle distractions and delays and discouragements, especially with myself and with other people. He's taught me how to move forward when everything around me seems to be falling apart. He's taught me how to motivate people, how to, how to manage my anger. Anybody ever have a challenge in managing your anger? Me? He's taught me how to respond when people criticize you or misrepresent your motives, falsely accuse you. He's taught me how to be successful without losing my head and taking advantage unfairly of privileges that I might have. He has taught me what it looks like when God moves in power. He's taught me how to maintain spiritual vitality. It's an amazing book. His name means God comforts. And I've been praying that God will use this study comfort many of, of us. So let me, set, let me set the stage for the book while you're finding Nehemiah chapter 1. A thousand years before the birth of Jesus was the golden age of Israel. King Saul was followed by King David, the great King David, and followed then by David's son Solomon, who actually walked away from the Lord in many ways, got into idolatry and all. And his son made unwise decisions that caused the kingdom to be divided. So you've got the northern kingdom of Israel, you've got the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had one bad king after another, one great sin after another. And God judged them in 722. The Assyrians swept in, took half of the people, imported other people, and they became the Samaritans that you read about in the New Testament. The southern kingdom, Judah, had a number of good kings. They experienced periods of awakening uh, from the Lord, some wise decisions and God's kindness. But they also fell into a very, very deep idolatry. And in 586, the Babylonian army swept in this time and decimated 
the southern kingdom. In fact, let me read to you from 2 Chronicles 36, what happened when the Babylonians came in um, about 500 years before the birth of Jesus. 2 Chronicles 36. God brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple, the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces. They destroyed everything of value. First thing they did was they took the children of prominent families to Babylon, like Daniel and, and his friends. They left the poorest of the poor there in Judah. But God had promised through Isaiah that after 70 years, he was going to bring people back to the Holy Land. And he fulfilled that promise. And the book of Ezra tells about wave after wave of people who come back to Israel. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah form one book. It's Ezra, Nehemiah. There's a lot of similarities between these two books. The first six chapters of Ezra deal with building the temple. The last chapters deal with building the people. The first six chapters of Nehemiah talk about building the wall around the city. The last chapters talk about building the people. So let's, and I pray all this is going to happen to us. God's going to build us. He's going to renew us. So let's look at the first three verses of Nehemiah chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. You say, who was Hakaliah? I don't know. What do you do? I don't know. But now it happened in the month of Kislev, which is like November, December in the Jewish calendar. It's, it's winter time. In the 20th year, that's the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, the very king that Easter was that Esther was related with, as I was in Susa, the capital. So that's like the winter capital of Persia, which today is Iran. It's, it's like the Washington, D.C. in the wintertime. That Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, a thousand miles away. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Look at the last verse of chapter 1. He says, I was the cupbearer of the king. So get the picture here. Persian king speared poison. Where you were going to kill a king was you would poison him. So they had to have people they trusted. So Nehemiah became what's called the cupbearer. And before the king ate any food, Nehemiah ate the food. And if he didn't, if he didn't die within a few seconds, the food was good. And then the wine was poured, and Nehemiah was the first one to drink the wine. If there's any poison, he's going to die first. So any day he didn't die was a good day for Nehemiah. He's a man the king literally trusts. And one day, visitors come from Jerusalem, and he says, how are things going back there? He's never been there. He was born in Persia. He's more Persian than he is Jewish, but he loves God and loves God's people and God's plan, and they tell him the city is like a ghost town. Remember what New Orleans looked like after Katrina? Remember some of the areas around here after the, after the, the tornadoes 
tore through. It's what, uh, what Jerusalem looks like. And they said, the walls are broken down. We don't live with walls around. Most of us don't live with walls around our house. We have fences. Maybe you live in a gated community. But walls were the only way a city could be protected. If there were not walls, terrorists or foreign armies can sweep in. The only way a city could survive was to have walls around it in, in that day. And Nehemiah knows if those walls are not rebuilt, the people of God have no protection. The city of Jerusalem has no protection at all. And the people who live there are going to be assimilated into other religions, other nations. They'll lose their identity. And Nehemiah understands that God had promised to bless everyone through the Jewish people and that the Messiah was going to come through the Jewish people. So it's a big deal those walls are down, and it's even more. He says he learned the people were in shame. Other people were looking at them, mocking their God. Your God can't even protect you. Who is your God? What could he possibly do? They were laughing at the God of Israel, and it breaks his heart. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is like a kick in the gut. This wrecks this man. He's like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, he can't eat. All he can do is cry and pray. And just to clarify how broken he is, the report of the Babylonians who attacked the city, that, that took place 141 years before this. This would be like me coming this morning and saying, folks, I hate to tell you, but 141 years ago, the, Chicago, the city of Chicago burned down. And you fall out of your seats and start wailing and crying. A little late for that. 141 years. You say, what's the deal here? Apparently, God is opening his heart and breaking his heart over the condition of God's people. What is going on? I heard a, people, I had a pastor one time say, God will never bless a tearless ministry. And there's something about it grabbing your heart. So I want to say four things. Here's the first one. God's work, God's calling on your life. The way you know what God wants you to do often begins with a broken heart. Everything that takes place in this book after this goes back to the broken heart of Nehemiah. He can't sleep. He can't get it out of his mind. He keeps saying to himself, this is so wrong. I can't go on. It can't go on like this. Something has to happen. When I was uh, growing up, kids my age, we would watch a particular cartoon about a sailor named Popeye. Anybody ever watch Popeye? Anybody remember Popeye's girlfriend? She was a looker. <laughs> she made men whistle and dogs bark. I mean, she was something else. And Popeye's a pretty easygoing guy until something terrible threatened his girlfriend, olive oil. And he would feel his blood pressure rise and his pulse would begin to race. And it was then that he said a phrase that was embedded in my generation. Almost everyone in my age growing up watching this show can remember this phrase. He would say, that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. And he would open a can of what vegetable? <laughs> Eat it one big gulp, 
supernatural strength, most of it in his forearms. They would quadruple in size, and he was an unstoppable force for good. And he would rescue olive oil, and he would take care of the, the bad guys. And at the end, he would sing, I'm strong to the finish because I eats me spinach. I'm Popeye the sailor man. And the idea was to get kids eating spinach. But think about that line. That's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. What happens when you reach the point when you say, I can't stand this anymore? Moses sees a fellow Israelite being beaten by an Egyptian. And he says, the walls are down. He says, I, I can't stand this anymore. And he kills the Egyptian. Shepherd boy David's bringing food to his brothers. There, there's this giant who comes out from the enemies, from the Philistines, and he's mocking God and blaspheming God. And David says, why doesn't somebody do something? And his brothers say, because he's big. This can't go on. He's blaspheming the name of our God. Somebody has to do something. I can't stand it anymore. And he gets a sling, and the rest is history. Think about Martin Luther King 60 years ago. Can't stand the lynching of black people. Cannot stand the white signs, white only signs on restaurants and bathrooms. Can't stand blacks always being pushed to the back of the bus and the back of educational opportunities and housing opportunities. The walls are down, and finally he says, I can't stand this any longer. And he knew it might cost him his life. But he just couldn't sit there and let something happen. A businessman named Bob Pierce was in another country, and he was watching this feeding line of children. They were feeding little kids. It was a really hot day, and there were kids who were keeling over, falling down, and dying actually in front of him. And he ran up to the front of the line and said, you've got to feed these kids faster. And they said, we have no more food. He said, what? You're out of food? He got on a plane, came back to this country, got some of his buddies, organized them. They began to raise money, and an organization called World Vision was launched that today feeds millions of children around the world in the name of Jesus. Because one man said, may God break my heart with the things that break his heart. That's all I can stand. I can't stand it anymore. I was a high school student, and at our high school in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was a fire in a home, and the parents were killed, and there were five children who were left orphans. In the same town, Dick and Gwen Freeman uh, lived. They had five children of their own. And they looked at those five kids that had no parents anymore and broke their heart. And they said, we've got to do something. We have to do something. And they adopted five more children. The church they attended helped them put an addition on their home. Dick told me one time, he said, I came home from work, and one of the kids was sitting on the stairs crying. And he said, why are you crying? He said, because there's nobody my age to play with. And Dick said, I thought everybody had somebody their age to play with. He said, I, I couldn't stand it anymore. It broke, broke his heart. Mother Teresa is a girl's school teacher in Calcutta on her way to school, stepping over men and women who are dying, homeless, destitute came to the point she said, this must change. And through a series of events, launched this ministry, the Missionaries of Charity, working all over the world because she said, I can't stand it any longer. What kept Billy Graham going 60 years using the best of technology? 
What launched him with his first crusade to rent his first tent in Los Angeles and preach to thousands of people and call them to repent and put their faith in Christ? What drove him? He couldn't stand the thought of people living and dying without knowing of the love of Jesus on the cross. So that was his message. Life is good for Nehemiah. He's got a good job. He's got retirement benefits. He doesn't have to concern himself with those Jews back in Jerusalem. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He's never been to Jerusalem. But he believed in God. He didn't need to get involved. He could have just said, who messed up? I mean, those Jews have been back there for years. Why haven't they done something? Incompetent people. He doesn't do that. He doesn't play the blame game because God had stirred his heart. And he said, I can't stand it any longer. So let me just ask this question. What can't you stand? What is it that when you see it on TV or you look around the community or at a school or at church, you look at it and it breaks your heart? What is it? What is it you just can't stand? It hurts you. You lie awake at night. makes you sick at your stomach. can't get it out of your mind. What is that? Is it homelessness? Is it racism? Is it abused children? Is it the poor? Is it people in prison? Is it immoral business practices or the sick can't get care? Is it young people who are drifting further and further away from the Lord? Is it dysfunctional church? What is it? You know, one of the primary ways that God shows you his mission for your life is through the sadness and the frustration and the heartbreak that finally brings you to the point of saying, I can't stand this any longer. Just, this is called holy discontent. Let me say one more thing. Often the way that God calls you to action, often the way he shows you his mission for your life is you see a need other people don't see. And what we do is we tend to complain to the elders. Why doesn't our church do something? Why don't, we, why don't we have a ministry to some group? Maybe because you're the one who sees the need, God's calling you to be the one to meet the need. God's giving you the eyes to see. You're having a Nehemiah moment. So the next time you get a burr under your saddle, <laughs> maybe it's God who put it there. And you go, well, who am I? I mean, what can I do? I mean, I... I, I don't even know where to begin. That was Nehemiah's question. What do you do when your heart is broken? Here's the second statement. Well, let me just read verses 5 through 11. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept, mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments... Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the people's but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, be under the further skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They're your servants. 
They're your people, Lord, whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Is it right to pray for success? If it's for God's glory, absolutely. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I was a cupbearer for the king. It begins with a broken heart that drives a person to pray. Now often, I've learned in East Texas, we're really independent here. And we see a need, we begin to put a plan in place. And we contact people, we set up a GoFundMe account, we're, we're going to make things happen. But Nehemiah knows he can't fix Jerusalem, he can't fix Jerusalem, he can't fix the people of God, only God can. So he prays. And the book of Nehemiah is a handbook on prayer. There are 11 prayers in this book. Some are long, some are short. He does more than pray, but he doesn't do anything without praying. He's like Jesus. Jesus goes into the temple, and there's all that commotion and all the noise and the money changers and the dust and animals and stuff everywhere. And he leaves, and he goes spend the night and prays all night long. And he goes the next morning back to the temple and takes action and drives the money changers out. And, and, and because this place, the Bible's not being taught, prayer's not being given, nobody can worship the Lord. He prays all night to see what God wants him to do. What do you want me to do about this? This is Nehemiah. His heart is broken. He is praying, God, would you clarify? All right, this is on my heart. What do you want me to do? at this point. And notice his prayer. His prayer is like the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He begins with God. He talks about how his God is big. He's a big God. He can do anything. He can move any mountain. He can overcome any problem. He's the great and awesome God. He's the master of all. He begins with God. And then he confesses not only his sins, but the sins of his people. You ever done that? You ever confessed the sins of this church as if they were yours? Have you ever confessed the sins of our country as if you committed them? You ever? He, this is corporate confession. He, said, he says, all of this bad stuff that happened, it's because we didn't listen. We didn't listen to you. We brought this on ourselves, he says. And then he fasts. It's a way of humbling yourself. Richard Foster, his book, Celebration of Discipline, says more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things, but in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. So he, adoration, and then confession, and then he builds a case for God to answer prayer. He gives God reasons to answer his prayer. He says, remember, can you imagine telling Almighty God to remember something? Remember, I want to remind you of what you said. Apparently God loves to be reminded of his promises. He reminds God, Israel is your people. You went to a lot of trouble to redeem them. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 4, and he knows Isaiah 
44, he's praying with his Bible open, predicts that Israel was going to return to the promised land. He says, that's what you promised God. And then he makes one specific request. Just give me success in the eyes of this man, the king. Great doors swing on small, small hinges. In World War II, when General Patton would look over a field, he would say, see that farmhouse over there? I don't care what else happens. Take that farmhouse. Do not lose whatever the cost. Keep that farmhouse. Because he knew that battles are often won by critical small decisions. And Nehemiah understands God is telling him, if you will get the favor of this king, everything else will flow from that. So he, he decides to risk it all. It all begins with a broken heart, which drives a person to prayer and to develop a plan. Now, some of you are prayers, and some of you are planners. And prayers think, if we only had more people praying, if we only spent more time praying, planners focus on pragmatics. They say, it's good to pray. We've got to have a plan. And Nehemiah's both. He's a man of prayer, and he's also a planner. And as a church, we need to pray. We need to pray more. But we also need to make some plans. So chapter 2, first three verses. In the month of Nisan, four months after, he's been praying four months. He's waiting four months. Waiting time is never wasted time if it's waiting on God to move. Four months later, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. But the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I love that. He's, I said to the king, Law, may the king live forever. Long live the king. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? not good to be sad in front of a king. Some of you had employers like that. I mean, they had enough trouble. They didn't want you walking around, moping around, and they work all sad. So for four months, he hides, hides it, hides us, and then he can't take it any longer. And he says, I was afraid. I was afraid. He's going to ask the king to be away for over a year, and the king's going to eat every day. He's going to drink wine every day. And besides that, this is the very king that the nation has once before rebelled against. He's going to ask for a leave of absence when that was just unheard of. And so he says, then I shot an arrow prayer. You ever prayed an arrow prayer? I guarantee you, if you've seen headlights, if you've seen, if you've seen police car lights in your rearview mirror, you've prayed an arrow prayer. You've been a student and you've got a tough final come up. You prayed an arrow prayer. So he prayed, Lord, help me, help me in this moment. So the king says, well, what do you want? Verse 5, I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servants found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen was sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? In other words, he's got a plan. It pleased the king to send me when I had given him the time. 
And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may come let me pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. He walks into the presence of the king and says, I have three favors I want to ask you. I want to ask for a leave of absence. I want a military escort so that I don't get in trouble on that thousand mile trip to Jerusalem. And I want timber from your forest so I can rebuild the gates and the walls that have been burned. He is swinging for the fence. He's asking a king to, for permission to build a city that's rebelled against the king. He is asking the king to provide worship of a God that he doesn't even believe in. And, oh, I need a house too. Can you give me stuff to build my house? And everybody's shocked. The king says yes. All three requests. And Nehemiah knows why. Because the gracious hand of my God was on my life. The king granted all my requests. He just wanted God to be great. So if you're going to ask God for something, friends, ask big. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, also wrote a hymn. And part of that hymn says this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Ask big. We have a big God. And I learned something really cool this last week. While he was praying in those four months, the book of Ezra tells us there were some people who were beginning to rebuild the, the temple and other people of the area became very threatened and they sent letters back to this very king and said, the people are rebuilding the city and they're going to rebel against you again. And the king, this king said, stop the building, stop it. So the Jews in that city sent letters back and forth by camel <laughs> all the way to the king and said, king, if you look in the archives the previous king, Cyrus, told us we could do this. And so King Artaxerxes says, hmm, well, check the archives. And they checked. Sure enough, a previous king named Cyrus had said they could rebuild. And in fact, that, that Cyrus had said, if you try to stop them, you will be impaled on one of the beams from your house. And so Artaxerxes, the king, says, all right, let them, let them build. All that's going on while Nehemiah's praying. He doesn't know that. All he knows is God's broken his heart. He's prayed. God's given him favor, and he's, he's giving a big ask. He doesn't. Here's the point. God is always doing a lot of things we don't know behind the scenes. He's doing a hundred things we don't recognize at any one time. There's a lot more going on than what we can see, and Nehemiah learns that. So we're going to just finish the chapter real quick. Verse 9. So then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. I gave him the king's letters, and the king had sent with me officers of the army. The king's doing all that he said. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, these are people back near Jerusalem, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of, of Israel. Have you noticed some people have the spiritual gift of discouragement? Verse 17, so I went to Jerusalem. 1,000-mile trip through the desert, sand, scorpions, fleas, flies, heat, 
robbers. So I went to Jerusalem. I was there three days, and I rose in the night, and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, the only one that I was riding on. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down. His gates had been destroyed by fire. What's he doing? He's gathering facts. He's a planner. He's getting information. He's a good leader. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And I went by night to the valley. I inspected the wall. I turned back, entered the valley gate, and so returned. Officials didn't know where I had gone, what I was doing. He didn't want any opposition, any rumors to spread. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, and the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were with me. And then he gathers the people. I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Got a large group of people standing in front of him. You see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem has come in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been with me for good, and of the words the king had said. Here's the evidence. God's leading us. Here's what God is doing, he says. And they said, by the way, I think some of them must have said, say what? Huh? I mean, that, those walls had been down for 100 years. Those walls were uh, 15 feet tall, three to four feet wide, two and a half miles long. But they begin to talk to one another. Uh, he thinks we can. Maybe we can do this. They talked each other into it. I think we can do this. With God's help, we can do this. So they said, let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hand for the good work. But when... Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or claim in Jerusalem. Have you ever noticed that when you try to do something, there's always opposition? Have you ever noticed that when someone introduces something new in church, there are people who feel threatened? The seven last words of a dying church. We never did it that way before. So there's opposition, but the people rally behind him. They begin to feel hope. It all begins with a broken heart, which drives a person to prayer and to develop a plan that draw others into the plan. They finished the wall in 52 days. Had not happened ever before. How'd they do it? I'm ending with this. Commitment and perseverance. Jesus never hesitated to call people to a big commitment. Nor did Nehemiah. And perseverance, he would not quit. There was no quit in him. Is that the sermon I got all this from? You know who the hero of the book of Nehemiah is? Wayne, come on up here. Wayne is not the hero, by the way, but he's coming up here for a moment. Jesus once said, everything that's written in the scriptures is written about me. Jesus was the one who intercedes for his people. Jesus is the one who left the palace of heaven, sitting at the right hand of the king of the universe, 
to come to a broken planet and broken people. Jesus is the one who came not at the risk of his life, but with the certainty of dying. He's the hero of the book of Nehemiah. I wonder if you know him. I wonder if you've ever given your life to him. You do what Nehemiah did. You confess your sins before him. Lord, I'm a, I'm a failure. I'm a moral failure. I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. And you came for people like me. And I give my life to you. If you've never done that, I, I hope that you will. And I want you to hear a word from the chairman of our elders. You know, it truly was a God-sized mission that Nehemiah embarked on. He was traveling to a city he had never seen, and he was going to undertake a job he couldn't accomplish on his own. And yet he went. All because of a broken heart for his people and a burden he felt to see them restored to God again. You know, as elders, we've spent a lot of time in prayer this year and just as in Nehemiah's day, we long to see God move among us and accomplish great things through his people. After much prayer and much discussion, we're proposing that for the next season of life here at FBC that we adopt a vision taken from a phrase in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, where Nehemiah put before them all God had put in his heart and they responded by saying, let us rise up and build so they strengthen their hands for the good work. Nehemiah tells us that rebuilding the city wall was a community effort. And this community effort united the people and restored their devotion to God. But simply saying, let us rise up and build was not enough. They also had to do the last part of the verse, which says they strengthened their hands for the good work. As they submitted themselves to God's plan, God stood faithful. God strengthened them to overcome opposition and great difficulty. Because ultimately we find that rebuilding the wall was not the end, it was a means to an end. The goal was to restore the Jews' devotion to the covenant God had made with them. So, let us rise up and build will be our vision statement and goal for the next phase of life here at FBC. We're proposing that we yield ourselves to God and ask Him to rekindle our devotion while working together rebuilding ministries here at FBC. We feel that God is calling us to walk closer to Him and in turn one another. And also, we don't feel like we need to wait on a new lead pastor to start this process. God is calling us right now. You know, in the New Testament, Peter said, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, this morning, if I held before you a single stone and I declared it to be a wall, you might, you might laugh at me. as you said, you know, that's not a stone. That's just not a wall. It's a single stone. And I'd have to agree with you. But if I had a thousand stones and I put mortar between them and I built them across the stage here, then you'd agree with me. Huh? Okay, yeah. You, you have a wall there. Well, in the same way, any one of us are limited in what we can accomplish. We are but a single stone. But when all of us bring our living stones together and let God unite us by the mortar of the Holy Spirit, then we can be built up into a spiritual house that God can use mightily. So will you join me and say, let us rise up and build? To give you an idea of what I'm talking about, let me tell you how the, how the elders have been yielding ourselves to God and working together to rebuild our particular ministry here at FBC. 
we have been very intentional by focusing in three areas. We've been focusing on relationships, communication, and trust. In the area of relationship, we have focused on restoration and reconciliation. For example, we have reached out to former lead pastors to make sure we've done all we can to make those relationships whole again. We've also made ourselves available to those who are spiritually in need and to those who are at odds with others. With communication, we are seeking to improve our transparency with the staff, deacons, and congregation. This means we're trying to be proactive and sensitive about how we communicate decisions we feel God has led us in. In regard to trust, we seek to be vulnerable and pliable to God's desires. You know, in the process, we admit that you know, we stumble and fail at times. We are seeking to be accountable to one another and trustworthy to those we lead by being transparent and open in our relationship with God. So, what has let us rise up and build look like for you? How would you strengthen your hand for the good work? As the elders, we pray that this is going to be an important discussion between you and God in the next few weeks. For some, you know, it might be developing habits that bring you closer to God. For some, it might be stepping out in faith and being a part of a ministry that you've never been a part of before. And still others, it may mean asking God to fix what is broken in your life. In the coming weeks, you're going to hear from uh, others in leadership. You're going to hear from people in the congregation. And they're going to tell you what rise up and build means in their lives. And also between now and May the 29th, you're going to have a chance to pray about it and see what it means to you personally. And you'll have a chance to share in the service that morning as we have a sharing service what rise up and build means to you personally. But one thing we do know for sure. God expects all of us to use our spiritual gifts in service to Jesus and his church. So please, please don't stand on the sidelines and watch. Don't be a spectator. God is calling all of us to be involved. Would you prayerfully ask God to rekindle your devotion to him and reveal how to strengthen your hand in rebuilding Fellowship Bible Church for God's glory? At this time, I want us to commit to this vision. And I'd like us to stand and read responsively Nehemiah 2, 7, 18, 17 and 18. I'd like you to respond as the people, as underlined in the slide. And if you feel led, if you feel led, please respond in a tone and intensity that you might imagine the people did in Nehemiah's day. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Amen. Yeah. Boy, I hope that those words, those six words just ring in your mind all week long. What is, what are we, what am I going to build? Or am I going to join God in doing in a church? I want to ask you if you can to get on your knees. And if you cannot kneel, just bow low in your seat. So go ahead and let's kneel together. Or in humility, just bow low before the Lord. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name.
Your kingdom come here. Your will be done here. You are a big God. You are the great and awesome Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and our Father. And we confess our sins as a church. We ask you to forgive us because of the merits of Jesus. And we ask you, Lord, to strengthen our hand as we rise up and build. As elders, deacons, staff, life group leaders, small group leaders, volunteers, as this church, we want to commit ourselves to you afresh and anew and ask you, do a great work here. Grant us spiritual success. Prosper us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. And if you agree with you, say amen.